I want to finish up this chapter, but I'm not going to read the, uh, the whole chapter. I'm going to read the first three verses and the last five, which sort of encapsulate what the whole chapter is about. Uh, we've already spent three weeks on this. Um, and the, the in-between stuff I'll, I'll refer to perhaps, but it's there mainly as support for the points that are being made at the beginning and the end. We're talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so once again, let's read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 7. This King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. His name, Melchizedek, in the first place means King of Righteousness. Note that, King of Righteousness. Next, he is also King of Salem, which means King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And I've gotten about four letters now of people saying, will you please explain that verse? Was Melchizedek really an eternal being? And it looks like that, but we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Then go down to verse 23. After making his case that Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which is the main uh, point that he's making throughout this chapter, he says, furthermore, the former priests, the Levitical priesthood, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He continues forever. And consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Say, praise the Lord. All right, that wasn't very enthusiastic. Say, praise the Lord again. Praise the Lord. All right, hey, that's what I like. He's exalted above the heavens. That's good news. Unlike the other high priest... He has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made a priest forever. Made a priest forever. Let's pray. Father, this is about your word and it's about... You, uh, Lord, having an opportunity here as we open up our hearts to give you an opportunity to change us and minister to us through your word. But Lord, we know that it is not through human wisdom and eloquence uh, or anything like that that kingdom fruit comes. Father, we know that it is only by your spirit using the stammering lips of your servants to that the word goes forth and it accomplishes all that you desire. So, Lord, this morning, be sovereign here. Even as you were in the worship, be sovereign, Lord, as the word goes forward. Anoint it. Customize it into our ears that we may hear what you want us to hear. And be glorified, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let me do a little poll here, an informal poll. What movie is this song from? Or these lyrics from The Heart Does Go On. Ah, okay. How many people here have seen the Titanic? 
Yay. Oh. Siskel and Ebert, thumbs up. Well, I've seen it a couple times. It's a very, very good show. I was uh, there last week uh, in this show. There's one point where I have to tell the kids that we really need some popcorn right now. You know what part I'm talking about. Told my, I knew it was coming up. Hey, Nathan, there's a boring part. He draws a picture. It's really boring. We need some more milk duds. You know, go get some. I don't want milk duds. Well, I'll tell you what, here's five bucks. Get anything you want. <laughs> I'm really hungry. So, but that aside, it's a, it's a, a very good show. It's a tearjerker. The lady next to us, I thought she was going to drown. I, it, <laughs> just. <laughs> Every time that music would come on, it's, I love you, Jack. I love you, Rose. And it's like, she starts. <laughs> the worst part is then I start doing it. I mean, it, I wish you'd shut up. It, good show. That whole scenario there, I'm going to back into this text using this analogy. The thing that's fascinating about the Titanic, I mean, it's just fascinating as a, as a historical phenomenon. It was supposed to be unsinkable, the ship of all ships, largest moving vessel ever created by human beings. It was, I understand, the first ship that actually was as large as, or almost as large as Noah's Ark, as it's described in the Bible, which is kind of interesting. But what was really interesting there is even after they hit the iceberg, um, and even after they'd sounded the warning that the ship was to sink, it was, going to, it was going to go down, people continued on the whole to go on as though nothing had really happened. Oh, there were a few who were in on the know who were you know, concerned about it, but everyone else just didn't believe it. It was like an inconvenience or something. They, they wanted to, to sip their brandy and smoke their cigars, and, and they didn't want to be bothered with this technicality. Surely it's not going to sink. Humans have an incredible ability to go into denial. When we don't like reality... We just decide that it's not real. And so we go on with our parties. They continue to have the same kind of concerns that people ordinarily have when they're not on a sinking ship. Who's the bad guy in the film? What's his name? Uh, the, the, the real, you know, rich... Cal. Cal, okay. Um, you've seen him 19 times. You should know his name. Um, Cal, you know, he's... He's worried about, you know, his diamond and about that love affair and whatever. And in an ordinary life, you'd be worried about this. But for goodness sake, in an hour, you're going to die. Get your mind on something else. People are worried about how these, these, these uh, flotation devices, life jackets, I guess they're technically termed, um, how, how gaudy they are. And they, they don't fit right and they don't look very stylish at all. And it's cold outside. They don't want to go outside. And they'd rather be having fun. And they think about the things that people ordinarily think about as though the ship were not sinking. This is why when they launched the first uh, couple lifeboats, in fact, quite a few of the initial lifeboats, they weren't full. People didn't want to get on them. They had 12 on one of them. It's like, what were these people thinking? Well, it didn't look that bad. Okay, the ship's beginning to tilt a little bit, but surely they'll fix it. It's a minor inconvenience. Things are going to get better. <laughs> and it wasn't until the very end when the thing really, the, the last 15 minutes of it is when most of the damage was done. All of a sudden, you reach this, this turning point, and the ship begins to really tilt, that people begin to say, you know what? Maybe this thing really is going to sink. And then there's, then there's an all-out frenzy. 
People are trying to get into lifeboats and whatnot. You can't, Cal couldn't even buy his way, with all the money that he had, couldn't even buy his way onto a lifeboat. What good is money on a sinking ship? On a sinking ship, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters, really, is what will float. What will float? I'd give anything I own right now for a flotation device. It's the only thing that matters. Now, I don't want to be a doomsday preacher, but I'm going to be. Um, because the reality of the situation is if you, can't, if you can't accept the good news, you can never appreciate the bad news. I mean, wait, other way around. If you can't hear the bad news, you'll never appreciate the good news. And the bad news is that the world is quite a bit like the Titanic. It's a sinking ship. The Bible says in many, many different ways that the earth is coming to an end. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Apparently people are perishing. Apparently the world is perishing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says that the end of all things is near. Now, I don't know how near it is, but I know that that was written about 2,000 years ago, so I know that we're closer to that end than they were back then. The end of all things is coming near. This world, as it is right now, is not designed to last forever. Now, you get a lot of people these days who are really kind of getting into the signs, you know, the signs of the times. In fact, that's not even a new phenomena. People have been doing that throughout history. Trying to discern this thing or that thing, you know. Uh, they say that there's more earthquakes now than ever before, and, and the weather patterns, El Nino is the sign of the times, and, and the jostling of the stock market is a sign of the times, and the wars and rumors of wars are a sign of the times, and the peace and safety is a sign of the times, and on and on and on on. And as we approach the year 2000, you're seeing an explosion of this preoccupation with end times stuff. I was this in uh, Barnes & Noble the other day, and there's three different books that have 2000 in their title. Could 2000 be the year? Of course it could be the year. So could 1998. But they're really getting into this. And you're going to see more of this in the next couple of years, I'm sure. Let me just say a word about that. The year 2000 happened four years ago. Our calendars, we now know, it was, they, our calendars were, were, were constructed by a monk in the 6th century, and he missed it by six years. Jesus was born in 6 B.C. 1994 was the year 2000. There's nothing significant about the year 2000, unless we all missed the rapture and it already happened, which I hope is not the case. <laughs> Bad theology. Still... Though I think it's, it's uh, largely a waste of time to be preoccupied with the details about when and where and how. It's kind of like wondering, will the Titanic sink at 2.40 a.m. or 2.42? Well, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, will it break in half before it goes down or will it not? I mean, people fight about this. Will the rapture happen before or in the middle of and what, will, and what does the plagues mean? Well, you know what? It's going to sink. That's all you really need to know. And the details, God will take care of. Not a whole lot's going to be wagered on that. Still, it doesn't take a theological rocket scientist to know that it's going to come to an end. And it doesn't take a lot of radical apocalyptic thinking to understand that it seems like it could be sooner than later. I mean, for one thing, think about this. It took, it took all of humanity, six to 10,000 years, people debate this, to 
I reached a, a population of one billion. Around 1900, we hit one, the one billion mark. It took another 60 years, only 60 years, in comparison to the whole of history up till 1900, to hit the two billion mark. It took another 30 years to hit the four billion mark. Now, you do the numbers on this, you do the mathematics on it, and you realize that we're going to run out of space here before too long. At the very least, you know that the world can't go on as usual for very much longer. There's some radical food shortage is going to be happening. But other things also point in this direction. Right now, people are pretty secure because the major nations aren't at war with one another. We're, we're, we're past the Cold War deal. The arms race on a uh, global level seems to have gone down. Peace and safety, when they say peace and safety, the Bible says the end is near. This could be what they're talking about. I don't know. But that's not the, the, the worrisome thing. It's not China and the Soviet Union that you need to worry about. It's these terrorists. And as you have the proliferation of, of, of nuclear know-how, it's just a matter of time, you've got to know this, before it ends up in the hands of some radical Islamic fundamentalist who, doesn't, who thinks it's God's will to blow up all of New York, starting a chain reaction of world power conflict, and boom, there you go. It's conceivable, but at least you know that there's no way to... Once, see, knowledge is not inherently good. We think it's inherently good. The more you know, the better. It's not inherently good. You can c come up with things and, and, and have an understanding of the world that if you don't have the moral character to handle, it's a bad thing. And once it's out there, you can't withdraw it. And that's what the situation is today. Genetic engineering is another one of those areas. When you hear about cloning and all that kind of stuff, you've got to wonder how long is God going to let it go on. You've got to wonder how long is God going to let it go on. There is a, a remarkable inclination on the part of fallen humanity to think it can play God. And it plays God whenever it can. And uh, though they're trying to outlaw human cloning, I don't know where that's going to go, but it's a scary prospect. But even beyond that, okay, even beyond that, maybe we'll find a way out of it. But science itself, if there's anything we know about science, the most fundamental law of science is called the second law of thermodynamics, which basically tells you that things run down. If there's anything we know about the, the, the material cosmos that we live in, it's that it cannot last forever. It winds down. It, it strives for a state of equilibrium, as they say, which means a cold death. Everything is burning up. Your life is burning up. It runs down. You don't go on forever. The sun doesn't go on forever. The solar system can't go on forever. The galaxy can't go on forever. The universe can't go on forever. It's got to come to an end. If we know anything about anything on a physical plane, it is that. It can't go on forever. It's perishing. And you know this, even beyond that, you know this about your life. You're not going to go on forever. You are perishing. You are winding down. They say that. This is a depressing thought. Little kids like that are still winding up. But after the age of 18 to 20, we're all winding down. We've been, I've been dying for 20 years, terminally ill. Isn't that sad? Get out your handkerchiefs. I'm on my way out, and so are you. It's coming to an end. The world is perishing. We don't know the details of the whole thing. We don't know exactly how, but it is coming to an end. But most people, as they did on the Titanic, ignore that reality. They eat, drink, live, and be happy as though things will go on forever just as they are. Yeah, they notice a tilt. They notice some things are off. Things aren't quite like they should be. But you know what? Uh, I got a brandy to sip and a cigar to smoke, and it's cold outside, and I'm just going to kind of ignore that, that piece of information. And they go on without thinking about what is the ultimate purpose for everything. What is the ultimate end of everything? Where is the whole thing going? How will it end? What the Bible does tell us, 
People argue about the details. It does tell us this. When the end comes, it's going to come fairly suddenly. And I know you're all wondering what this has to do with Hebrews, and I'll get to it. But let me just read you this one passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. Okay, don't, don't get all into... We've been in the end times, times and seasons for 2,000 years. Don't get bothered by the details. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord, this end time, when God decides to finish this incredible novel that he's been writing with world history, you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, a thief in the night. You don't plan on the thief being there. It comes quite inconspicuously. You're caught off guard. And then he says this, When they say there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. What an analogy. You've been, women, if you've been through that, you know what, Paul, you, you should be saying amen right now. It's a, um, uh, I, I suffered it by proxy. And um, <laughs> man, when it hits, it hits. It's, woo, what is this? And like the sinking of the Titanic, it, it starts to go faster and faster and faster and harder and harder and harder, and it doesn't take very long at all, and bam, Sudden destruction. Your life is ruined from then on. Okay. No, the, the miraculous creation of a life. It's going to end suddenly. We know that. It can't go on. You know in your own reasoning it can't go on forever. The Bible tells us it can't go on forever. And when God decides the wrap to show up, it's going to get wrapped up very quickly. So the time to think about this, the time to think about the sinking of the Titanic is not when it's only got four inches left before it goes under. The time to think about the sinking of the Titanic is when you first notice the tilt. And the time to think about what the end of the world or the end of your life is now. And in a situation where a boat is sinking, a ship is sinking, the only thing that matters is not how, how, does, the, how, how does this life jacket fit and, and can I sip my, my brandy and smoke my cigar. The only thing that matters is what's going to float. And to apply it to our situation, it comes to this. We know that the world's going to end, the, the universe is going to end, your life is going to end. So the only relevant question, and you've got to ask it now, because when it ends, it's going to end suddenly. The only relevant question is what floats? What doesn't perish? What doesn't dissipate? What doesn't come to an end? The problem is that everything you look around and everything you see, everything you can touch, everything you can taste, everything you think you can rely on is part of the perishing world. It's like these people on the Titanic when they're grabbing out of these posts. <laughs> Not going to do you a whole lot of good. Because the post is part of the problem. It's also going down. Grabbing on to what is sinking is not going to save you. What do you grab on to in this world that is perishing? I can't grab on to me because I perish. I can't grab on to my job because it perishes. I can't grab on to money. It perishes. I can't grab on to anything because it comes to an end. And here's where we hit the beautiful proclamation of Hebrews chapter 7. What doesn't perish? What doesn't end? The thing that doesn't end is the thing that never began. And his name is Jesus Christ. The one thing that's not part of the sinking ship is the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the author says here in Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Without beginning, without end, without uh, lineage, human descent, he is a priest forever, always has been and always will be. Now let me explain verse, uh, verse 3 here of, of Hebrews 7. It says there of Melchizedek that he had neither father nor mother, neither beginning of days nor end of days. Does this mean that Melchizedek was God? Because only God is, is eternal in both directions. 
Some think that. Some think that this was, he was not only like the Son of God, but he was the Son of God. That he was, he was uh, kind of a, a theophany, it's called, a manifestation of God before the incarnation. That's not an impossible view. But I, there's really no reason to go in that direction, and here's why. We always need to try to enter into the context of a, the cultural context of a passage to understand it as the original hearers would understand it. The author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, and in a Jewish audience, these are people that were raised in the synagogue and, and knew rabbinical teaching and rabbinical methods. We know that in, in the rabbinical teaching, the teaching of the rabbis in the first century, it was customary to not only argue, make a point on the basis of what the Bible says, but it was okay to make a point on the basis of what the Bible does not say. You could draw out, you could argue from silence to make a point of the Bible. So what the author here, I think, is doing is simply this. He notes that in the Bible, there's no mention of the birth of Melchizedek, there's no mention of the death of Melchizedek, there's no mention of any parents that, that he had. I don't think that means that the author didn't think he had parents or never began, but what it does mean is that for the author, there's nothing divinely significant about his parents or about his birth. And so the Bible doesn't mention him. Unlike the Levitical priesthood that the author is constantly arguing against, this guy, it doesn't mention in the Bible any place where he began. And so insofar as the Bible speaks about Melchizedek, he's a type of Christ who really did not ever begin. You see what I'm saying? They argue from silence. Insofar as Scripture teaches, there's no father, no mother, no genealogy. Obviously that's not important. And yet here he is, a high priest. Melchizedek's a high priest of the Most High God. And insofar as the Bible mentions him, He's the type of the one who would come who also doesn't have any significant birth and no significant death because he doesn't have a birth and he doesn't have a death. That's what's going on there. The point he wants to make is not about Melchizedek here. It's about Jesus Christ. What the author says is this. Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, he never begins. And unlike the, uh, the Levitical priesthood, he never comes to an end. This theme of the endlessness and beginninglessness, if you will, of Jesus Christ is one that runs throughout the whole of Scripture. You even go back to the Old Testament, and you find this. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, for example. 400 years before Jesus is ever born, it says this. The Lord prophesies to Bethlehem, and it says, And you, Bethlehem, though you are the smallest of the tribes of Judah, out of you shall come one whose goings forth have been from everlasting past. Now think about this. In Bethlehem will be born somebody who nevertheless always was. Remarkable thing. How can you both be born and always be? Think about it. The only way that is possible is if you have two natures, which is what we know is true about Jesus Christ. As a human being, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but as God, he's always been and always will be. And if you're here this morning and you're not a convinced believer, you've got to ask yourself this question. How did the author, 400 years before Jesus was ever born, get this very interesting paradoxical information about Jesus right? Do you know how many towns there are in the world? Only one of them can give birth to the Messiah, and that's Bethlehem. And the author gets it right. You also find this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. 800 years before Jesus is ever born, the author says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, born and given. But his name shall be called Counselor, Wonderful, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. 
He's both born and unborn, both temporal and eternal, both in time and not in time. This is Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully human. Born in Bethlehem, but he's always been and always will be. It's a theme that goes over and over again. Because in a world where nothing lasts forever, knowing what does not end is a very important fact to have. The question is, what floats? It's a theme you find throughout the New Testament. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ always has been. In the beginning, go back as far as you can go, and there is Jesus. Go back another trillion years, and there is Jesus. He never began. We can't conceive of it, but it's the truth. Colossians 1.15 says he's before all things, and that's why he's above all things. Over and over again, you have this theme. Jesus prays this prayer in John 17. Father, I pray that you would glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world began. This guy did not begin to exist in Bethlehem. He was with the Father from eternity past. This is why he's always saying things like, I've come down from heaven. I've come down from heaven. I existed before I came down, and now I'm here. This is why, one of the reasons why, you can't put Jesus on a par with any other teacher, any other philosophy, any other system of thought in the world. You don't find Buddha saying, I've come down from heaven, and no one claims that Buddha has existed from everlasting past, or Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, or Socrates, or, any of the, or Confucius, or any of the great teachers. The great teachers, fine, grant them that. But all of them began to exist, and all of them stopped existing. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? On a totally different plane. He's eternal. And whenever I say things like this, I get somebody who gets agitated saying, it's not fair that you, that you diss these other philosophies and other religions. And I'm not trying to diss other religions. There's good stuff in them. But in a sinking ship like the Titanic or like the planet Earth, it's not time. There's no time to be politically correct. What matters is the question, what will float? What's going to survive this thing? And in a situation like this, what I'm saying is don't grab onto Buddha. Don't grab onto Muhammad. Don't grab onto any system of thought. Grab onto Jesus Christ, the one who always has been and the one who always will be. Praise the Lord. In the end, one thing's flowed. That's why the Bible says, of his kingdom there will be no end. In Luke chapter 1, when he's born, the angels proclaim this. Luke chapter 1, verse 33. Of his kingdom there will be no end. That can be said about one kingdom and one kingdom only. In the book of Revelations, let me read this verse here. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. I want you to note something here. It's really, it's really uh, important here as we're in this time where we might be going to war with Iraq once again. The author says, The kingdom of this world will pass away. It will become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of this world, he speaks in the singular. The kingdom of this world. Now there are a lot of kingdoms in this world. Okay, there's the kingdom of the U.S., the kingdom of Iraq, the kingdom of Australia, the kingdom of Great Britain, the kingdom of China, Soviet Union, and the rest. There's a lot of kingdoms. But what we need to understand is this. They're all part of one kingdom. It is the kingdom of this world, it is the kingdom of this age, and it is all destined to perish. It is all under, to some degree at least, all under the authority of the one who the Bible says is the God of this age, Satan. 
1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says that he has, Satan has, control of the entire world. This is written even after the crucifixion and the resurrection. He still has control of the entire world. What that tells you is this. Though there are many kingdoms, and some are a little bit better than others perhaps, all of them to a significant degree are under the influence of a destructive, demonic, diabolical, evil power. None of them are the kingdom of God. Never identify one of the kingdoms of this world with, 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 with being even close to the kingdom of God. They're under the power of the one who is an enemy of God. His name in the book of Revelation is Apollonai, which means destruction. And that's why these kingdoms always fester destruction. Of course they're fighting with one another. They've been doing that throughout history. They kill off one another. They're territorial. They're petty. They're ideological. They waste people just to make a political point. That's the kingdoms of this world under the hands of an evil, uh, an evil archangel named Satan. But what you got to know is this. Since the crucifixion and the resurrection, Satan has been perishing. He's dying. He knows he's dying. He's on his way out. He's been dealt a fatal death blow, and he's on his way out. And as he's on his way out, the kingdoms of this world, as they're part of the kingdom of this world, are also on their way out. All of them are destined to come to nothing, but in their place will be set up the one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose kingdom will never end. It will never be threatened. It will never be assuaged. It can never be overturned. It will last forever and ever and ever. And whatever other point you want to make out of this, we got to get this. Don't grab on to the kingdom of this world. Don't grab on to the kingdom of the U.S. or the kingdom of Iraq or any kingdom like that. Do what you need to do to survive in this world. But in the end, know that we are missionaries down here. We're citizens of a different kingdom. We're destined for a different place. Never assume that the country you're a part of is equivalent to God's will. The kingdoms of this world are always fighting and clashing, and they'll all come to nothing. But grab hold of the kingdom of God, which will take over the world, which will last forever as Jesus Christ reigns on this earth. And to all who say yes to him, they also will reign forever and ever and ever. The time when God's will will finally be done. So the author, praise God, the author makes this point to the, to, the, to the Hebrews. Don't go back to this Levitical priesthood, this system of offering sacrifices every time you sin and all that. That had a role to play among God's people for a season, but that time has come to an end. Don't go back to a religious system which began in time and which will end in time when you've got a high priest who never began and who will never end. Don't go back to that. And the force it has to have for us None of us are prone to go back to a Levitical priesthood. But we are prone sometimes to go back to Levitical type of things. Levitical religious systems of thought and deeds where you, you try to earn your way to heaven or try to do this deed or that deed that somehow is going to make you secure in the kingdom of God. What the author is saying is don't grab on to your works as your security. Don't grab on to what you think is your own righteousness as your security. Don't grab on to the things that you've sacrificed that you think warrants you being in the kingdom of God. Don't grab on to this philosophy or that philosophy. Don't even grab on to churchianity, which goes under the name of Christianity. Grab on to Jesus Christ. Hold tight to this lifeboat. It will never sink. It will never end. It will last forever. And it's the one thing that will. And this morning, if you're, here, if you're here and you've never gotten in that lifeboat, I want to implore you, I want to encourage you this morning, now, don't wait till the sudden destruction comes upon us or till you get in a car wreck on the way home, okay? Now is the time. Today, the Bible says, is the, is the day of salvation. Grab hold of Jesus Christ right now. Put your trust and your security in him. 
The one thing that stays afloat in a sinking Titanic, which is the world, is the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the author says in the first three verses of the chapter that he is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace and he's the king of righteousness. That's not just... See, Jesus isn't just a security device for when we die or when the world ends. That's not, he's not your, your fire insurance. He wants to be in a relationship with you now, and he can give a peace now because he can give a righteousness now. It makes a difference in the world now. He makes all the difference in the world now. He makes a big difference in the end when the ship sinks, but he makes a difference now, and it comes under the name of him being the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Let me put it like this. You know, when the Titanic was sinking, as you saw in the movie, one evidence that it's sinking is that nothing seems to work the way it's supposed to work. And the closer you get to the end, the less things work. I mean, dishes. When the, as the ship tilts, these dishes start falling off the shelves and start falling on the floor, doing what dishes aren't supposed to do. And the bed, it starts sliding across the floor. Nothing stays in place. You've got to work harder just to keep your equilibrium. Things are always off balance. It's a sign that the ship is sinking. One sign that this world is sinking is that our lives are very much like this, are they not? It's very hard to keep balanced. Uh, the, 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 the dishes keep on, on falling off, and you try to hold up the dishes, and then the bed starts to slide. And life is like this. It, it's, just, it's just one thing after another. It creates a lot of anxiety in our spirits. It's no fun being on a sinking ship, and you can't keep your room in order. But here's what it looks like to us in a concrete term. I'll just use some fictitious names, but the issues are real issues. Here's what a sinking ship looks like. To Bill, it's a matter of having anxiety because your son in the Air Force went over to the Gulf, and if a war breaks out, you don't know what's going to happen to him, and so you're understandably anxious. Sue's got some kids that are caught in the middle of a, uh, a very nasty divorce, and her, and her husband is using them as pawns, and she's worried about what damage that will have to them. Betty's new in the area, and she's anxious because she can't find any friends. And Carl lost his job at the age of 55 after working in a company for 25 years and doesn't know if he can get a job again. Deb's involved in a new marriage and finding out some very scary things about her, her new husband, wondering if this thing's ever going to last. Sam is guilt-ridden for having compulsive thoughts of lust. Jill's worried because she now has to confront her family about some sexual abuse that occurred in the past. Plates falling off the cabinets and the bed is sliding. Things aren't in order. This isn't how God's created world was supposed to operate. Jan's got a husband who's very distant and she's dying of loneliness. Charlie has lost his ability to have sex with his wife. John has got bad grades and wonders about his chances of getting into medical school. Nate is being audited by the IRS. That'd make anyone crack up. Grandpa Lyle has got a constipation problem. Mary's car broke down, can't afford to get it fixed. Marsha's got a... Uh, what does Marsha have? Oh, a lump in her breast. And Trish is nervous and she doesn't even know why. You ever get like that? You ever just like, all of a sudden, it's like, this, this, this. there's no reason. You just get anxious. <laughs> but on a sinking ship, you don't need a particular reason to be nervous. It's a nerve-wracking situation. Now, here's the thing. You got to do all you can do to keep your room in order. Address the issues. Confront them head on. Surround yourself with prayer. Get into counseling if you need to get in counseling. Invite some friends into the situation. Be in the Word and ask God to help in this situation because even as the ship is sinking, God wants us to manifest as much of the kingdom of God that is to come right here and right now as can possibly be manifested. He cares about the falling dishes and the sliding bed. So invite him into the situations. But at the same time, know this. 
The Bible diagnoses our condition this way. The fundamental problem is not the falling dishes and the sliding bed. Those are problems for sure. But the root of the problem of our anxiety, our nervousness, or maybe it comes out more as depression or, or a lot of or phobias. The root of the problem, according to the Bible, is not the dishes and the bed that slides. The root of the problem is a conflict with our Creator. We're not in right relationship with the one who never began and the one who never ends. And even if you, for a season, it's always only for a season, it's always temporary, but even if you're able for a time to hold the dishes in place and the bed in place at the same time, good for you, great job, but you know what? You're not going to have peace. You may have absence of conflict, but you'll never know what real peace is because real peace only comes from God, and that comes from having a right relationship with God. Amen? Holding the things in place maybe gives you a temporary alleviation of the crashes and the sliding bed, but it doesn't give peace. According to the Bible, peace comes only when we are reconciled with the one who is eternal and the one who will not sink. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the root of our problem in anxiety is a lack of conflict with, 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 uh, or a conflict that we have with the Creator. The solution to it is to get right with our Creator, and that's what Jesus Christ came to do. It wasn't in the Levitical priesthood that you offer up your sacrifices day after day because of the sin that you have. That doesn't give peace. It gives a temporary seizing of conflict. But Jesus Christ comes, the Bible says here in Hebrews 7, verse 25, to once and for all, a sufficiency that is good for all time. He came and offered himself up, up as a sacrifice to reconcile us with God so that sin is no longer the issue between us and God. We are at peace with God because he's taking care of it all on the cross. That's the life of that we need to trust. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, being justified, the word there means to be made righteous, being justified by faith. Not through a Levitical priesthood, not by trying hard, but by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith, now works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Praise God. He's called the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. It's so significant to us for right here and right now as the dishes are crashing and the bed is sliding. A king in the ancient world could do whatever a king wanted to do. The king said it, it was done. A king can give whatever a king wants to give. No one can question that. The king of righteousness owns all righteousness. That's what it is to be a king. And this king decides to give away his righteousness. That's why we're compatible with God. We can't be compatible with God with a kind of righteousness. No. The only way to be compatible with God is to have God's righteousness. And the only way to get that is to have him give it to you. That's why this priest, who never began and never end, it's so crucial that we see that he's God because he's the only one who has the right to give away his righteousness. And that's what he does for free. He imputes it to us. He says, you are righteous. He creates in us his own kind of righteousness. And that's why the Bible says we can have a peace that passes understanding. To the extent that we put our trust in him, which should be fully, there's a peace. At a fundamental level, between me and my creator, the one who never began and the one who never will end, I have peace. I have peace. That passes understanding. He gives me, in fact, his peace, the Bible says. Jesus says in John 14, my peace I give to you. I don't just give you a kind of a peace, just like I give you my righteousness here. Take a chunk of my righteousness there. Now we're the same. So also he gives us his peace, takes his peace and puts it inside us. The peace of God. 
The peace of the Holy Spirit is within us. If you're a believer, that's part of the lifeboat. The peace of God. It passes all understanding. See, the thing is, on a sinking ship, there are very few guarantees. I can't promise you that your son's going to be okay. I wish I could. I can't promise you that your marriage is going to succeed. I can't promise you that that lump on the breast is going to be benign. I can't, no one can guarantee that. I can't guarantee that, that uh, your husband's not going to turn out to be a total jerk. I can't guarantee that he's going to stop using your kids as a pawn. I can't guarantee any of that. Life is full of unguarantees. The dishes break and the bed slides and it's a royal mess. But what you can guarantee is this. You can offer something that is untouched by the dishes and untouched by the sliding bed and untouched by the sinking ship. And that's the peace of God that passes all understanding. It passes understanding because everybody else who's hanging on to these sinking poles for dear life and nervous about it looks at you and there's a peace that can be yours. And it passes their understanding. What? Don't you know the dishes are breaking? Don't you know the bed is sliding? Don't you know the ship is sinking? Yeah. But I got a peace that passes understanding. Because it's a peace that is rooted in the core of our being. Knowing that I am rooted in the one who never began, who never ends, who's not threatened by anything. God's pretty calm about things. You know what? He's, he's pretty even keel. He's, in fact, full of joy in his own ecstatic love. He enters into our situations, but he doesn't lose his own peace over the situation. God deals with the world out of his peace. He deals with the world out of his joy, and he gives us the capacity to do the same thing. When you've got the peace of God that passes all understanding, you know what? You're a lot better able to handle the dishes in the sliding bed. You bring to the situation a peace. If your peace depends on the situation, you freak out. And then you're no good for anybody. But if you go there out of being rooted in divine peace, now you've got a creativity, a thought, a balance, a calmness that can deal with the situation. Let me end by giving you this one little thing to maybe try in your own prayer life. I do this sometimes, and it just means the world to me. Remember, those of you who saw the movie, In the Titanic, there's one scene where the camera zooms up into the sky and it watches the Titanic from a, from a distance. And you, you can barely hear the screaming. And it's all very calm and actually quite beautiful and the stars are there. I mean, it, it actually is pretty, though that maybe is insensitive for me to say, but there's a calmness there. That's kind of God's perspective. Now, he's also inside the screams, all right? He's dealing with that. It's not like he's up there, he doesn't care. But he's got an eternal perspective on things that just makes everything on this world seem very small. And I've found sometimes in prayer, if I'm getting attacked, if i got stuff going on that's making me very nervous, and I live in this world, folks, and, and there are dishes that break and beds that slide, and we're all human, and the tendency is to go, oh, no, 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 and freak out. But sometimes in prayer, what I've done is I say, God, give me your perspective of the situation. Show me your perspective. And one of the things that that looks like sometimes is that I zoom out, and I see it, my life just becomes a little tiny thing and all the little struggles I have become so little tiny because this is a God who measures everything according to eternity past and eternity future. And in that perspective, everything is quite small. The worst problems you're facing, the cancer you've got in the total scheme of things is a little hiccup. Not to minimize it, no. But it is, from God's perspective, very small. And now the word is, you being in love with and trusting the one who never began and never ends he wants to give you that peace. The peace that comes from having God's perspective on things. This morning, two things. If you're here and you're not a believer, you've never put your whole life in the lifeboat. I want to encourage you, after we're dismissed, I'm gonna, we're going to play some more music. If you want to sit and worship and whatever, people will be around worshiping God or just let, 
waiting on God, but I want to invite you to come forward here and get in the lifeboat. It's one prayer away. It makes all the difference in the world. If you're here this morning and you're not, you're not, you're tense, the problems of life are getting you, you don't have that peace, receive the peace of God. Either there, sit for a while in the pew, or if you want to come forward and pray with somebody, feel free to do that. But get God's perspective on it. See it from the eternal angle, and it really becomes rather small. Let me pray. And Ruth, would you come out on the piano? Father, I thank you, Lord, that you told us, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but my peace I give to you. Lord, we receive that peace. The peace, Lord God, of, of uh, having your perspective on a sinking ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. God, we know the world comes to an end. Our lives come to an end. But I thank you, Lord God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, I pray that I and everyone in this auditorium would grab hold of that one truth and hang on to it for dear life and invest our entire being into it and derive the peace that passes understanding from that. And for anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you'd open up their eyes to see the reality of the sinking ship and then open up their eyes to see the reality of your eternal nature. And God, win them over to yourself. Draw them to put their trust in you. We give you the praise and the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.